You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Some things in life are worth the struggle and the hardship that you go through to get them. And yet, other things in life, they're just not worth it. Would you agree? I mean, some things are worth it, but some, some things aren't. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Sergio Garcia burst on to the PGA Tour at the age of 19. This was back in 1999. He won 30 different tournaments, PGA events, over the course of his career. And he's been ranked in among the top 10 of golfers most of his career. But he kind of got the label because he never won a major tournament. So he was labeled the best golfer on the PGA who never won a major until last Sunday. And he won the 2017 Masters. Some of you watched the playoff and wow, what a great, uh, he choked on 18, but he won it on 18 again. So it was good. I was pulling for him. I think most everybody was pulling for him. But here's the deal. If you were to ask Sergio Garcia today, a week later, everything that you went through, almost nearly 20 years of monotony, not winning a major, was it worth it to finally win one? And I got a feeling he would say, absolutely. It was worth every bit of it. What a great experience. Another example. Some of you have been following on social media and in the news this uh, viral video of Chicago's O'Hare Airport police force forcefully dragging this uh, Louisville doctor off of a United flight. Have you seen this? This is amazing. I'm not going to show it to you because I just thought it was sad. You know, poor guy. And I could see me, you know. No, I'm not going, you know. I want $3,000, you know. And so they're dragging him off, and you've seen it. it. This has been a public relations nightmare for United Airlines. And I think today, if you were to ask the CEO of United, was it worth it to free up that seat, he would tell you categorically, without question, no, it wasn't worth it at all. Not at all. Some of you are probably also wondering, are six-pack abs worth it? And I can tell you as a 54-year-old man, no. And simply put, no. And those of you that think that that is me, thank you for the uh, flattery. But no, that's not me. There's a lot more layering going on there than what you see right there. Last example, last example. Several years ago, my wife Ann and I went to a department store in the middle of the night to wait in line for the doors to open. This was the kickoff of Black Friday. And this was kind of in the early days of Black Friday sales, right? You got to be strategic. And so we were there, and here's the deal. We were, we were going to be one of those 25 customers that saved $100 on a DVD player, right? So when the doors opened, I was kind of, you know, going into the door, and I noticed my wife, boom, my sweet kind-hearted, loving wife. She was channeling her inner Benny Snell, or, yeah, she, I mean, this was, it, it was crazy. Anything that got in her way, she ran over it or through it. <laughs> Displays, human beings, small children, it didn't matter. And she got the DVD player, and we saved a hundred bucks. Was it worth everything we went through to save the hundred dollars? No. I can tell you that I would not do that again. 
Was it worth it to watch my wife tear through the store? Absolutely. <laughs> it was one of the greatest moments of my life. The most athletic I've ever seen her. I mean, it was like that. It was a Heisman pose. You know, she was doing it all. Will we ever do it again? The store won't allow us to. I think the security has said no. No, not at all. You can't talk about Easter without referencing the cross that Jesus died on. And I can't help but wonder if there was some point during Jesus' life where he thought about the cross and he wondered, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because he's the one that's going to go to the cross. And he's pondering. He knows what's coming. He's God. He already knows what's coming. Is it worth it? We're going to use Luke, the 23rd chapter. If you have your Bible, you want to open your phone or tablet to it. Luke 23, we're going to start with verse 39 here in just a minute. But I want to give you a bit of background to the text. First of all, the Romans used crucifixion. That's what you call what happened on the cross. It was called crucifixion. And the Romans used crucifixion as a method of execution for ruthless criminals and notorious rebels. And what they would do is they would just stretch the criminal out on the cross, laid on the ground. They would nail his hands and his feet, or really truthfully, his wrists and his feet to the cross. And then they would raise it up and drop it into a pre-dug hole. The, the reality of this is the pain of crucifixion was just indescribably brutal. Brutal. In fact, some scholars tell us that the cross was frequently tilted forward just a little bit. To increase the agony by throwing all the body weight on the hands and the feet. It was just torture. The crucifixion, through the crucifixion, the Romans had perfected the maximum suffering that a human being could experience. This was a terrible, terrible way to die. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. A hundred, several hundred years prior to the crucifixion of Jesus... The prophet Isaiah prophesied something that may have been a little bit confusing or didn't make a lot of sense at the time. But this is what he said, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. That means that Jesus, the Messiah, he would be, he would be lumped in with the, the criminals. He would be among the criminals. And what we know about his crucifixion is that there were two capital criminals who were crucified on each side of him. Matthew calls them robbers. But it's interesting because when we think of robbers, we, we think of people who, you know, stick them up, you know, kind of stealing things from people. But the word tells us a lot more in the Greek. The word that he used there in Matthew's account is a word that means one who uses violence to rob openly. These are people who were violent criminals. They would commit the crimes in the broad daylight as opposed to the thief who breaks into someone's home when they're away or in the middle of the night and quietly steals something from them. These guys were brazen robbers. In fact, these two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus may have been guilty of armed robbery that included murder, thus making it a capital crime. Now, there was a sign also that was tacked to the cross above Jesus' head. And that was the sign that had the charge that he was guilty of. And it was written in three different languages. First, it was written in Greek, which was the universal language of the Roman Empire. 
Then it was written in, in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jewish people. And then it was written in Aramaic, which was kind of the common man's language, or some referred to it as the language of the uneducated. Whatever the case was, Pilate made sure that whoever saw this sign would be able to read it. They put it in the three main languages of the culture. Now, the charge itself, on that sign, above Jesus, stated the charge that he was guilty of. At least that he was found guilty of. That's why he was on the cross. That's the purpose of the sign. And when the Jewish leaders saw this, they were enraged by it. They saw this sign because they were enraged by it when they saw the sign because they saw it more of a, as a statement of fact than the charge of a capital criminal. The sign simply said, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. And this was the charge that he was accused of. Here's the irony. He was guilty of that, if you could think of it that way. If Jesus was ever guilty, it was of that. Because it really wasn't a charge, right? He was actually the king of the Jews. He's still the king of the Jews. And you can see why the Jewish leaders were frustrated. I mean, they were just enraged by that. Well, there were three crosses on this hill that is historically referred to as Golgotha or Calvary. It's the place where crucifixions took place in Jerusalem. And there are three crosses there. Well, I want to look at these three different crosses because there's a lot that's going on in the few hours that these men are on these crosses dying. The first cross... We'll call it cross number one over here. This is where the scoffer is. If you're taking notes, we'll call him the scoffer. Now, he's a, he's a robber. He's committed a capital crime. That's why he's being executed. But we'll call him the scoffer. And the reason we do that is found in verse 39 of our text. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The reason he's called the scoffer is because he's ridiculing Jesus. Now, if you read Matthew's account and Mark's account, two accounts of the same story, what you will read is that both of these, these criminals were ridiculing and mocking Jesus. But nearly everybody who was at the crucifixion was mocking Jesus. First of all, you've got this huge crowd that's there, and the majority of them are mocking Jesus. Look what Mark says. He says, those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. If you're going to be able to destroy the temple and reassemble it in three days, they thought it, it meant the actual temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. But they were saying, if you could do that, then you surely could come off the cross and save yourself. The crowd was laying it on him. But not just the crowd. Not just the crowd. Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders also mocked him. The Jewish leaders. Look what Matthew says about it. He says, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the religious elites are hammering on this man while he's dying. And not only them, but the Roman soldiers, the very ones who executed Jesus, 
are mocking him. Luke tells us this. He says, the soldiers also came up and mocked him and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Everybody's mocking him, except for a handful of Jesus' closest friends and family. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that the two criminals on either side of him start to chime in. They start to mock Jesus as well. Matthew says in Matthew 27, 44, he said, In the same way the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the criminals, they just joined in. Everybody. Everybody is hammering on the guy on cross number three. I don't know about you, but I've been made fun of a lot in my life. I have been put down. I've been ridiculed. And to be honest with you, uh, probably a lot of it I had coming. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my dad used to say, if you dish it out, you got to be able to take it, right? And so I dish it out a lot. And sometimes it goes too far and somebody gets mad and then they, they really come after you, right? But I can tell you that, truthfully, only once in my life has anybody ever put me down for being a Christian. It happened in my senior year of high school, uh, near the end of school, really. And uh, there was a classmate of mine who started giving me a hard time. He just started ripping on me because... I uh, had this, you know, my character was such that I didn't party. And then most of the people in my high school party, most of them did. And so this guy, his name was David. He was a sophomore, so he's two years younger than me. He just starts, he starts, you know, giving me a hard time, putting me down. And I was fine with that. This wasn't the first time that it happened. And I was okay with that. But then something changed. He started to mock Jesus. And I didn't realize how vested I was in that. He started to mock Jesus. He said, and I quote, he's the God of the Most High. Now that's quoting scripture, but he was putting it in a context where he was linking Jesus to drug use. He was making him out to be the king of the stoners. And I can't tell you that the emotion that just welled up in me. I mean, I got mad. I mean, that ready to explode kind of mad. You, you know that kind of mad? I was going to defend Jesus' honor right there in that classroom when my friend Steve Sheets, he was, a, he was an offensive guard on the high school football team. He came over. He was a big cat, okay? And he just said, hey, man, let me just remind you that that's not worth it. As Steve was a young Christian, he was a friend of mine for a long time, but he was dead solid right. It wasn't worth it. And so I backed off. And you know, we have the best example of that in this story. Look at it. Everybody's mocking Jesus. The rabbis, the priests, the Roman soldiers, the crowd. You've even got the uh, criminals crucified next to him that are mocking him. And not once did Jesus defend himself. Not once did he make a verbal case. Not once did he even retaliate. This passage often reminds me, this part of the story of the crucifixion, often reminds me of that old hymn. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Yeah, I'm on that team right there, right? At some point, just nuke them all, right? But that's not what it, the, the song goes on. It says he could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He didn't do that. He didn't retaliate, not at all. 
He just took it. And what we'll find out later in the story is the reason he did that was because of love. Not just for you and me, but he did it because he loved the very people who were causing him suffering, the very people who were responsible for his execution. But that doesn't mean that the the mocking stopped. In fact, the scoffer didn't let up. He kept on verbally pounding on Jesus. In Matthew, it says he heaped insults on him. And that's kind of a subtle way of saying, you know, he was ripping on him. He was ridiculing him. It means to defame or disparage. The Greek word that that, uh, Matthew uses means to rail against or to assail with abusive words. But when Luke tells the story, later on, as time passes, the mocking got even worse. And Luke uses an interesting word. He says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Now, that, that gets translated to say hurled insults. It sounds innocent enough. But that word that, that Luke uses says that he actually started to blaspheme Jesus. Blasphemy is significantly more severe and offensive than the previous insults. In fact, it was so offensive that the criminal on cross number two, this other robber, this other capital criminal, he actually rebukes this guy for the words that he's using against Jesus. I mean, it's kind of bad when you get a character call from the guy who's hanging on the cross or across the way. But that's what happened. There's logic in the, in the scoffer's words, though. And, and I want to I give him a little bit of, of recognition for this. He says the Messiah should at least be able to save himself. And while he's saving himself, he might as well show his power by saving those who are dying with him. If you're the Messiah, he's saying, save yourself. And while you're at it, throw me a little bit of, throw me a little bit of salvation, too. This criminal most likely deserved the punishment that he was getting. He's suffering the most horrible of deaths. And in the process, though, he's hurling blasphemous insults at the only person in all of the universe who could save him. It was a big mistake. I mean, he just played this horribly wrong. Some people speculate why the scoffer was blaspheming Jesus, why he was throwing this at him. Maybe he was just going with the flow. I mean, as we said, everybody there was mocking him, and maybe it's just amping up. Maybe it was part of his character. Maybe he was just a he was just a really bad, evil, awful person. You know? Or maybe maybe he had misinformation about Jesus. Maybe he'd been led to believe that Jesus was a terrible, awful person. And so in in the context, it just made sense to, to pile on everybody else was. Or maybe, just maybe, he was suffering so much that it seemed that if he were to if he were to throw out a few barbs at the guy next to him, maybe it would ease his discomfort and frustration. The truth is we're not really sure why he did it. And the truth is, is that we're not really sure why we at times do the same thing. You ever find yourself wondering, you know, why God's not showing up? Some of us today are treating Jesus a lot like the scoffer did. And I get it. Life's hard. Sometimes it's even painful. You feel empty at times. You feel like life lacks meaning and purpose. 
and you're, you're looking there and you're saying, we need some help. We need somebody to step in and to do something. Where is God? It's like God is totally silent, like he's ignoring me. And so what we do is we look for answers in a variety of other places, most of which they're just temporary solutions that end up compounding our problems. They don't fix anything. It's easy to see how rejecting Jesus might seem easier than following him. And yet, here's the truth about this. Jesus actually is the answer to life's problems. He's the one answer. If you've never tried him before, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. If you've never tried Jesus, you probably owe it to yourself. You may be very surprised what a difference he can make. As time passes... This scoffer continues to scoff, blaspheme, mock Jesus. As time passes, though, this other criminal starts finding himself strangely moved by what's been going on. The conduct of this mysterious person who's on this cross right next to him, the cross in the middle, and whatever the mental process was that led him to change his heart, his words are really pointed, and they show some deep reflection when he rebukes the scoffer. Listen to what he says in verses 40 and 41. Don't you fear God? Remember, he's saying it to the scoffer. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing. That brings us to cross number two. Cross number two is the cross where the sinner was. He was a robber. He was, he was guilty of the capital crimes, the same as the, the scoffer, but we'll call him the sinner. Both of these criminals are nearing death. And this one over here is arrogantly, you know, casting all these blasphemous insults towards Jesus, but not this guy. Now, he did start out insulting him, but something's changed. <coughs> Excuse me. He's not doing it now. At some point during this execution, this sinner came to realize that something was different about the man on cross number three. He came to realize that there's a lot of reason to believe that this guy is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And maybe, just maybe, he can change the trajectory of my eternity. Don't you fear God? That's a powerful, powerful question, isn't it? Death has a way of dialing into focus the things that are really important in life, doesn't it? If you've ever been to the doctor, you've been with someone who's gone to a doctor that's been given that terrible news that they only have a short time left to live, they're often told by that doctor or someone close to them, it's time to get your affairs in order. That's a nice encouragement or admonition to say, take care of the important things in life because you're dying and the amount of time you have left here is very, very short. And one of those things that all of us have to address is whether or not God is real. You have to address God in your life because if he is real, then you're going to have to face him, which means, are you ready? Are you ready? It's clear that this dying criminal on cross number two is getting his affairs in order. Look what he says in verse 41. 
He says, we are punished justly for what we're getting, what our, de- what our deeds, what we are getting for what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This second robber confessed his sins. And in the process, he's inviting the scoffer to confess his as well. And they both, he recognizes that they both deserve to die. They're both guilty of these crimes. They stood in this sharpest of contrasts up against Jesus. I mean, you have Jesus here who is like the sinless, perfect example of a sinless life. And over here, you have these two guys who could easily have been on a reality show, extreme sinners. These guys went to the ends of of the world to sin. And when you stand them up against Jesus... The contrast is it's just overwhelming. Admitting his sin was the crucial part of showing the repentance that he had in his heart. Why did this thief suddenly see Jesus as the one who could save him? We'd speculate. We don't really know. The story is so short and the details are really limited, so we don't really know. But we could speculate that maybe... Just maybe he had heard Jesus preach at one time before, previously, and those words were coming back. They were starting to, to ruminate and, 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 and matriculate down in his mind. Or maybe somebody had told him before about some of the talks that Jesus had done, and those things were coming to make sense. Or maybe it's possible that his experience, the several hours on the cross together, impacted him to the point that it changed his per- perspective. A friend of mine was telling me a a week or so ago that there are three types of love that we show to other people. The first type of love is the love that we show when the other person can love us back. And most of us are really good at that kind of love, right? The second kind of love is the love that we give when the other person has no capacity to love us in return. But the third kind of love... It's the most difficult, and yet it's the most powerful of loves. This is when we love those who are causing us harm or worse. And if you're taking notes, right next to the word worse, you should just put in parentheses the word death. Because there are people who will die, and in the process they will love those people who are actually the the cause of their death. Jesus was executed like a capital criminal, but he'd not committed any crime. Then he's mocked and he's ridiculed by the crowds, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, even being blasphemed by a criminal who's dying next to him. And while all of this is happening, Luke tells us this, that Jesus talks to his heavenly Father and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He showed them this love. He showed love to those who were actually the very ones responsible for his suffering and his death. This was so powerful that it may well have caught the attention of the sinner on cross number two. How this thief came to recognize the innocence of Jesus in this moment, we're not told. But his statement incorporates a great theological truth, and it is this. Jesus did not deserve to die. He didn't. He was the sinless dying for sinners. He was the innocent 
You know, sharing the fate of the guilty. He was the pure and spotless Lamb of God taking on the sins of the world. Certainly this thief didn't understand or recognize all of that, but he understood some of it. And as a result, he asked Jesus for a favor. Look what he said in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The sinner had a request for Jesus. He wanted him just to remember him, to help him out. When he enters into his kingdom, he must have had some hope that somehow that Jesus miraculously would survive this crucifixion and establish an earthly kingdom. Or maybe he had a better understanding of what was going on. And he was thinking about Jesus establishing his heavenly kingdom, his spiritual kingdom. And so he asked Jesus for help. He didn't know. He really didn't know all that he asked for. But he had enough faith to ask to be part of whatever Jesus was up to. He had no more life ahead of him. In fact, he's got an hour or two, maybe three at the very best, and then he's going to die. But he sought an eternal blessing from Jesus beyond this cruel death, beyond all that he had messed up in this earth. So the focus of the crowds, the focus of the scoffer, the focus of the sinner... All this, is, all this attention is focused on cross number three. Nobody's really looking at these guys. They're looking at cross number three. It's the most valuable. It's the most important. This is where the sinner, this is where the sinner is finding hope. This is because this is where the Savior is. And Jesus answers the sinner's request. Look what he said. Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I'm sure if you were reading this this story for the very first time, I'm not sure that you saw this happening in the narrative. But that's what he says. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' response was crystal clear to this sinner. This robber didn't have to wait even one day. His faith had secured him a place with Jesus. He had to have been overwhelmed and overjoyed. He would be part of Jesus' kingdom. He would be with him today in a place called paradise. Now, the expression in paradise was, was actually a, a phrase that had been taken from the Persian language. And it was a reference to a, a beautiful park or a beautiful garden. In the Bible, it was used, associated with the blessing of the final judgment of God. This paradise is an amazing end-of-time kind of place. And Jesus promised that this believing robber, this sinner, you'll be with me today in this place we call paradise. Here's the interesting thing about that. If you read the entire context of Scripture, you find that Jesus' promise to the thief extends to all who believe in him. When we call on him for salvation, when we're acknowledging all of our sin and we're seeking forgiveness, he responds. Eternity will begin for you on that day when you accept God's grace, when you receive his forgiveness. You too can experience life in the kingdom of God by putting your faith in the Savior. The sinner on cross number two was saved. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. 
but he was saved. The sinner hoped for some kind of help in the future, and Jesus gave him forgiveness that day. And then he died, and he, he was in paradise with Jesus. The same can be true for every single person in this room. Every person who hears this message on podcast or on Vimeo. And nothing can change that. But only you can choose it or choose to reject it. Nobody can make this decision for you. It's one that only you can make. The Apostle Paul put it this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Nothing can separate you once you enter into this relationship with God. Well, the story takes a turn. When you think about it, the unthinkable happened. Jesus died right there on cross number three. He died. The Bible says he just breathed his last. And then the Roman soldiers came out and they broke the legs of the scoffer and the sinner shortly thereafter and they died very quickly. And the scoffer, he woke up in hell. But the sinner wasn't a sinner any longer. He was a saint. And he woke up in paradise with Jesus. And then something incredibly radical happened. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And that changed everything. It was the only power that Satan had over us. It was death. And Jesus said, nah, nah, baby, nah, this ain't, this ain't a power. The sinner had enough faith to ask Jesus for help. He didn't have all the details. He didn't have all the information. But he had enough to know that he could ask Jesus. The question I have for you today is, do you have enough information to make that decision? This guy was getting his affairs in order. And he asked the right questions. Sadly, the scoffer was so close to salvation. He was as close as the sinner was. But he totally missed it. This life all boils down to one crucial question. What will you do with the one who died on cross number three? What will you do with the Messiah? What will you do with the one who rose from the dead? Will you be like the scoffer? Will you put Jesus off and maybe even mock him and eventually reject him? If you do, you will miss out on paradise and you'll end up paying for all eternity for your sins? Or will you be like the sinner on cross number two? Will you put your faith in Jesus, have your sins washed away, and begin living for eternity? The question really is, what will you do with the man on cross number three? How will you respond to the Savior? You know, some things are worth the struggle and the hardship that we go through to get them. And some things are just not worth it. Was Jesus' death on the cross, was it worth it? Absolutely. Because through his death and his resurrection, it is only in that that we have hope that our sins can be washed away. 
that we could be part of the family of God and we could spend eternity with him in heaven. I hope you'll trust him if you've never done that before. We're gonna do something a little different this morning. I'm gonna pray and then Todd is gonna sing uh, a new song. And I just wanna encourage you not to stand, uh, just listen, just listen, focus on the words, focus on this talk. Focus on what God is speaking to you. If you've never made this decision, you can come at any time during the remainder of this, ser- this service and we'll be down front. There'll be a number of us up front. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Whatever the case is, you can make your way forward to do that during that song or after. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the promise that we heard today that no matter how bad the sin in our life might be, and these guys that were on the crosses next to him were, were pretty bad dudes, we recognize, God, that your grace can cover every bit of that sin. I pray, God, because I know on uh, a day like today, there's a lot of people who come in here that are hurting, that life has just been pounding on them. Or maybe relationships have soured and haven't turned out the way that they dreamed. Or maybe they've had health challenges that they never saw coming and they're, they're afraid. Or maybe they're just lonely. They just don't have anybody else in life. God, you are the answer to all of life's problems. And I pray that they would choose to put their hope in you today. We know that you love us because of what you did on the cross. You didn't have to do that. You could have called 10,000 angels. You could have just wiped out the world. But you stayed there. You didn't retaliate. You became the pure and spotless sacrifice that we desperately needed. And God, for that, we're grateful. You went through a lot to offer us forgiveness. I pray, God, that we would not take this lightly today. We ask, God, that if there's one here who doesn't know you, that they would know the love you have for them and that they would make Jesus their Lord today. We pray this in his precious, life-saving name.